Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. It's good to be with you today. Today's lesson will come from Mark chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 32 through 37. And I've titled this lesson, Staying Real in a Virtual World. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. And I'm going to pray with us Paul's prayer that he prayed for the Philippians. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. In 2003, Nick Bostrom, a philosophy professor at Oxford University, he wrote a scientific paper where he proposed a radical idea. This was the idea that everything that is, exists in our universe, including us, everything may be part of a vast computer simulation, that we exist only as part of a virtual world. Now, this idea is known as simulation theory, and while it may seem extreme to us, it is taken seriously by philosophers, physicists, technologists, uh, all who have held conferences, written papers. They've debated this idea since it was proposed. Now, if you've seen the Matrix movies, you recognize this as the main plot. Characters living out their daily lives unaware that they are only part of a computer simulation. But we see Jesus in this section of Mark presenting his disciples with a similar idea, warning them that the world they see all around them is not the real world. As Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we live day to day in this physical world. So it's easy for us to forget that this present physical age is a temporary existence, that the world we live in is really a virtual world that will be replaced at some point by the reality of the eternal. We miss out then on the full abundant life that Christ provides because we live as if this existence is the real world. We accept its values, its priorities, its principles as real, as the norm. In the scripture we're studying today, Jesus tells his disciples, be alert. Live in this world with the constant awareness that it's not truly real, that at some point it will pass away and the eternal will be revealed. Jesus tells them, don't fall asleep. Don't confuse this world for the reality that is to come. When we live according to the false reality of this world, we miss out on the full abundant life that's promised to us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven because our false reality causes us to fear the wrong things, our false reality causes us to live by the wrong principles, and our false reality causes us to adopt the wrong priorities or values. Christ promised that he had come to give us life, abundant life, life to the full. So why don't we have this full, abundant life that was promised to us? 
why do we as Christians seem to live with the same restrictions, the same problems, the same failings as the culture around us? My proposal is we are missing out on the life Christ promised because we are citizens of heaven, but we live as if this world were our real world, living by its values, its priorities, its principles. In a sense, we are living in a false reality. The Jewish people saw heaven and earth as two dimensions, existing side by side, overlapping at times, intertwining at times, two distinct realities. Heaven was God's kingdom, the domain in which God ruled. The earth, on the other hand, had been given over to what Paul described as the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world. But the Jewish people believed at some point God would intervene. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven would be established in this world. God would invade this earthly reality. When that happened, there would be a new reality. Earth would be remade in the image of heaven. Revelation eleven fifteen tells us, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. When Jesus began his ministry, this was exactly what he announced. The kingdom of heaven was near. It had arrived in the body and the presence of Jesus himself. Jesus was telling us things had changed. There is now a new reality. And this news greatly excited his disciples and those who believed in Jesus. But there were many things about this kingdom that confused them. And a big part of this confusion was due to the nature of the kingdom itself. Kingdom theology tells us that the kingdom is already here and not yet here at the same time. The kingdom exists. It was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But it is not yet here in its fullness. The disciples were living in a state where the kingdom of heaven had arrived but was not yet fully realized. This would come at a later point when Jesus would return. Then the kingdom would be fully realized. There would be the dimensions of heaven and earth coming together in a new heaven and a new earth. But we have to live in this physical earthly dimension while we wait for the final realization of the kingdom. As we live in the here and now, this virtual world, uh, it, it makes it easy for us to forget this is not the true reality. There's another dimension that exists, an eternal existence. This virtual world that seems so real, so permanent, it will vanish. So we face the challenge of living as citizens of the kingdom while still in this present world. In the scripture we're looking at today, Jesus and his disciples are in the Passover to, or are, are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And this week will eventually end with the arrest and the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus. You can imagine things are tense. Jesus is spending his days at the temple teaching the people, but then he and his disciples leave each night to stay outside the city. 
It makes sense for the temple to be the focus of Jesus' ministry during this week. The temple was important to the hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims who flocked to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate the Passover. The temple was where they sacrificed the Passover lamb. The temple was important to the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the priests. It was the source of their economic and political power. The temple was important to the Romans. It was often a flashpoint of Jewish rebellion and resistance. And so the Roman government was constantly keeping track of what was going on at the temple. It was important to Herod, the the ruler of the Jewish people. He had rebuilt the temple, restoring it to some of its former grandeur. And the temple is also significant in what it meant for the Jewish worship. The temple was the intersection point between heaven and earth. We've talked before, according to Jewish theology, heaven and earth exist side by side, two realities that coexist and that can overlap. The temple is one of those places where the two realities intersect, where heaven literally invades earth, where God exists in a bodily form. This isn't just a a symbol. This is literal. The Jews took it in its literal meaning. God was actually present in the inner part of the temple, and that's why the Holy of Holies was off limits. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple at the end of the day, and the disciples are in awe of the splendor and magnificence of the temple. And they exclaim to Jesus, Look at these massive stones. What magnificent buildings. Jesus tells them, There's coming a day when all of these buildings will be destroyed when not one of these great massive stones will be left on top of another. In other words, it would be in total ruins. And Jesus is telling the disciples, you are focusing on the wrong reality. You are impressed by this physical temple, by these buildings of stone and wood. But all of this is really an illusion. It will soon be gone. Jesus wanted them to focus on the reality of the kingdom of heaven the reality in which Jesus himself becomes the new temple. Earth and heaven would meet, would intersect, not in the inner part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. They would intersect in the body and presence of Christ. Jesus himself would be the mechanism through which God would invade this world, through which this world would be remade as part of the kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples naturally want to know When will these things happen? So, let's look at how Jesus answers them. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. 
Now, the disciples wanted to know, when will these things happen? But Jesus doesn't answer this question. He tells them, no one knows when these things will be except the Father. Not even I, the Son, I don't even know the hour. But Jesus goes on to tell them, that's not what's important. Your concern shouldn't be on when these things will happen. Your concern should be on staying on your guard, on keeping alert. And Jesus goes on to use a parable. He tells them of a master, an owner of a house, who goes away on a trip, and he leaves his servants in charge of the household. When he goes, he gives each servant an assignment, and he tells the one at the door, you are to watch, to keep guard. And Jesus presses home the point, Keep watch because you don't know when the master will return. When he does come back, you do not want him to find you asleep. Now, Jesus has used this analogy before in other places. The idea of a man who goes on a trip and leaves his servants in charge, but he expects his servants to carry on his business while he is away. Now, the problem is, The servants, from their point of view, have accepted a false reality. From their perspective, they feel as if they are the real owners of the house. They are the ones who are there every day carrying out the business of the house. The master is gone, out of sight, out of mind. You can see why it would be natural for them to feel as if, really, the house was theirs. It was theirs to do with as they pleased. They forgot There was another owner of the house, and this owner would return someday. They forgot that the house didn't really belong to them, but to the master. Now, the servants knew logically, rationally, that the house wasn't theirs. It wasn't as if they had amnesia. In their minds, they knew the master was returning, but in their hearts, that wasn't what it felt like. Their day-to-day experience made them feel like they were on their own, that this was their house. And in many ways, we are like these servants. We know from a rational standpoint that our lives on this world will end someday. We know that we will die. We know that some point all of this will be over, but we manage to convince ourselves this point will be at some point so far in the future that it really doesn't matter. It's almost as if it doesn't exist. It's funny, no matter how old we are, no one really expects to die in the near future. The servants in this story, in their mind, they know the master will return, but they convince themselves that this will be at some point so far in the future, so far off that it really doesn't matter. The reality for the servants and for us, the master will return, The eternal world, the true world, will be established. You know, really, there are only two possible outcomes for us in this world. We will enter eternity at some point, either when the Lord returns or when we physically die. So, why does it matter if we confuse this virtual world with the real eternal world that is to come? Well, when we make this mistake, We waste our lives. We miss out on the full life that Christ promised. We end up living a stunted, stripped-down version of life. 
missing out on that full, abundant life that Jesus told us about. In John 8, 44, Satan is described as a liar and the father of lies. And one of the biggest lies that he convinces us of is that the Christian life is meant to be a bare-bones life, a life drained of what's pleasurable of what's fun. Satan convinces us that to become a Christian is to swap a full, pleasurable life in this world for the eventual payoff of a life in heaven. However, one of my favorite Bible verses, John 10.10, Jesus tells his disciples, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Some versions translate this as have it more abundantly or have a rich and satisfying life. The message translation reads, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, uh, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. In the 1970s, the Schlitz Beer Company ran a, a series of commercials where they urged TV viewers to go for the gusto. Now, the Schlitz people really stole this idea from Jesus. Jesus was the one who promised us a life of gusto, a life lived to the full. But when we mistake this temporary virtual world for the real thing, we miss out on the life that Jesus promised us. First, when we confuse this world with reality to come, we miss out on abundant life because we live in favor of the wrong or in fear of the wrong things. Our false reality causes us to be afraid of things that won't really matter, while we aren't afraid of the things that can really harm us. We all are familiar with the idea of phobias, irrational fears, and there are many different kinds of phobias. There's acrophobia, the fear of heights, claustrophobia, fear of confined spaces, and there are some very strange phobias. There's pagonophobia, the fear of beards, some people even have phobophobia, the fear of having a phobia. But we know as humans, we so often are afraid of the wrong things. For example, many people are deathly afraid of flying, and yet they think nothing about getting into a car, when reality is you are far more likely to die in a car accident than you are to die in a plane crash. Uh, Seinfeld was a comedian who had a, a routine based around a study of what people were afraid of. They had done a study which found the average person's greatest fear was giving a speech in public. And this actually was greater even than the fear of death. The fear of death came in third. And so Seinfeld had this routine that he worked up where he talked about when you go to a funeral, most people would rather be the guy in the coffin than the guy giving the eulogy. And we know that really doesn't make sense, but when we, when we are afraid of things, we often find ourselves being afraid of the wrong things. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can kill both soul and body in hell. You know, we live our lives in fear of losing the things of this world when we know that ultimately we cannot keep them. 
We live in fear of losing our jobs, losing houses, losing our health, losing our savings, when we know that at some point all of these things are going to go away. We live our lives in worry and anxiety over things that aren't going to matter. And we can recognize the truth of this. Think of the top five things that are worrying you right now. And then ask yourself, in 10 years, will I be worried about these same things? Will they really make much of a difference? What about in five years? Really, how many of these things are you going to be worried about next month? And so we find ourselves living in fear of things that really don't matter. And we miss out on the life that Christ promised to us. Now, secondly, when we confuse this world with the reality to come, we miss out on abundant life because we live by the wrong principles. While Jesus was with his disciples, he was continually teaching them about how the kingdom of heaven operated. He was giving them the principles of life lived in the kingdom, of what it meant to live by the rules of the kingdom of heaven. And we can find example after example when Jesus would teach them, but the disciples would fail to realize what he meant. They failed to understand how the kingdom operated. It made no sense to them because they were operating, they were consumed by this present world. When we buy a new device, a phone, a computer, a tablet, it usually comes with some kind of owner's manual a booklet of instructions, of operating principles, so to speak. Our problem is that as Christians, we are meant to be living according to the principles of the kingdom, but instead, we are using the wrong owner's manual. We're operating according to the principles of this world, trying to live the Christian life by the rules of this world, and it just does not work. Over and over, Jesus gave his disciples principles for living in the kingdom, principles that made no sense whatsoever to them. He told them things like, it's better to give than to receive. He told them, blessed are those who mourn. The one who saves his life will lose it, while whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was teaching them the principles of the kingdom of heaven, preparing them to live life in the kingdom. But our problem, when we try to live as Christians, but we operate according to the principles of this world, then what happens is we become enslaved. We live by the wrong operating principles. Paul in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, the third thing is when we confuse this world with the reality to come, we miss the abundant life because we adopt the wrong priorities and values. We allow this world to determine what's most important to us. We spend our resources, our efforts, our time, our money on the priorities based on the illusion of this world. We don't live by the reality of the eternal world to come. Matthew 16, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Are you living a successful life? How would you know? What would it take to make your life successful? Stephen Covey was one of the leading inspirational speakers of the past few decades, and he urged his readers to carry out what he called the funeral experiment. And this is really a a thought experiment where you are asked to visualize your own funeral. Imagine you are attending your own funeral. What is being said about you as different ones rise to sum up your lives? Would you like what they said about you? Would you not like it? How are you going to shape your life so that what they say is what you want to hear? Let's face it, when you ask people what is important to them, they'll say things like, well, my home, my family, my relationship with God, my marriage. Most people are not going to say, well, what's important to me is my boat or driving a sports car or success at my job. But when you look at how we're actually living, when you look at what we focus on, Most of us invest far more of our lives in our jobs, our cars, our homes, uh, our media posts. We spend far more of ourselves on these things than we do in what we claim is most valuable to us. Are you spending your resources accumulating things that cannot possibly survive the passing of this world? Jim Elliott had a quote that I really like. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The truth is, at some point, all of the things that we consider so important, our jobs, our retirement savings, our possessions, all of these are going away. You're going to lose them, and it may be sooner than you think. On November 14th of last year, there was a Super Lotto Plus drawing in California. And someone drew a winning ticket worth $26 million. And they had six months to redeem this ticket. Those six months were up last week. No one had come forward to claim the prize. They had videotape of a person buying the ticket, and so they knew it had been sold, but no one stepped forward. The story finally came out. The woman who had bought the ticket originally returned to where she had bought it, and she told the clerks there that she had bought the ticket, she had taken it home, and she had accidentally sent it through the laundry in the pocket of her pants. When she got it out of the washing machine, the lottery ticket, along with her $26 million, had disintegrated. Now, you can think about that. Now, this happened to her, and you think, oh, what a horrible thing. But that's going to happen to everybody at some point. At some point, everything you own in this life will disintegrate. It will pass away. It will do you no good whatsoever. But we live as if these things are what's most important to us. And so the question is, are we going to come to the end of our lives, see all of the things that we work so hard for disintegrate in front of our eyes, Or are we going to come to the end and realize that we've been focused on the wrong things all along? Jesus warned his disciples, be on guard, be alert. 
He didn't want his disciples to miss out, to end up mistaking this virtual world for the real world that is to come. You know, how often we miss out on what we've been promised, this promise of abundant life, because we attempt to live out a false reality. We shape our lives by this world. We are infinite creatures. We are designed for the kingdom of heaven, but we're living our lives by the values of this world. We're mistaking this temporary virtual world for the eternal reality of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus told his disciples about the kingdom of heaven, he kept trying to emphasize to them the value of what was being offered. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Survey after survey shows that in today's world, Christians live almost identically to those in the world who aren't Christians. We as Christians become trapped in the same addictions, the same lifestyles. We end up swallowing the same lies uh, as the world. What is wrong with our discipleship? Hans, Hans Frey wrote that our discipleship rises or falls depending upon which world we consider to be the most real. When this world is what is most real to us, we live in the same way as those around us. But when the kingdom of heaven becomes real to us, it shapes us in very new and different ways. It opens up a whole new type of life for us. We were made, we were designed for life in the kingdom, for a life at rest with God, and we'll never be content until we're part of that kingdom. We live in the wrong reality. As Christians, we are square pegs in round holes when we try to fit into this present world. Augustine of Hippo said it best. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. As you go throughout this next week, I pray that you'll find this rest that God has promised us, this abundant life that Christ told us was possible. As long as we don't make the mistake of confusing this virtual world with the reality of the kingdom. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all that you promised to us, for all that you made available for us. We hate to think that we're missing out on it because we're continuing to see this world as real when you have this eternal reality that is there for us to claim. And we just ask that you would lead us and guide us in this, that we may find all that you have for us and that you may be glorified in your name. Amen.